Hello and welcome to today's Clinical Care Options Neuroscience Podcast, Long-Term Solutions for Long-Term Diseases Using Long-Acting Injectable Antipsychotics in Practice. I'm Dr. Leslie Citrom, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York Medical College in Valhalla, New York. With me today to discuss practical strategies for using long-acting injectable antipsychotics is Dr. Adam Lowy, a staff psychiatrist at Ellenhorn in Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Dr. Lowy. Let's start by describing briefly the LAI antipsychotics that we have available today and how this is different from oral antipsychotics in terms of, oh, let's say pharmacokinetics. We have some choices, which is wonderful. It'd be wonderful if we had more choices. But we have our first generation, our second generation, long-acting injectable antipsychotics, haloperidol and flufenazine for first generation. And we have a couple of aeropiprazole formulations, um, palperidone, risperidone, and olanzapine formulations. Um, and they differ. We can talk about how they differ. They, they differ in terms of their parent compound, of course, um, and then also how they're formulated to be long-acting, whether they're, they have a long-chain fatty acid attached to it, whether they're in a microsphere, whether the crystal formation is, and, and dissolution is what leads to long-acting formulation. So, you know, what, what's really interesting is that they're all kind of different, and this results in different pharmacokinetic properties and different injection intervals. Can you take us through what's available today in terms of how often we need to provide injections? So we have long-acting injectables that span from a two-week frequency of injection to a six-month frequency of injection. Haloperidol typically is a every four-week injection. Flufenazine typically every two-week. Risperidone um, is every two-week formulation. We have palperidone formulations that are monthly, every three months, every six months. Um, and then we have Aeropiprazole formulations that are four weeks, six week, eight week. And, you know, when we think in general about long acting injectables, we can think about how they, of course, differ from oral antipsychotics and having a longer half life, orals having a half life of hours to days versus long acting injectables with weeks to months in terms of a half life. And then also, I think what's really important is the smaller peak-to-trough plasma concentration variability that exists with long-acting injectables and I believe can be correlated with, with better tolerability often, the fact that there isn't that variation between peak and trough as much. Yeah, you know, sometimes peak plasma levels are associated with some side effects. Of course, there are others that are not associated with it at all, but there is an advantage to having a steady plasma level that we can achieve with long-acting injectables. But, you know, sometimes I'm asked, uh, shouldn't we start someone on an oral, see how they do and, you know, if they tolerate it and that they respond to it? And, you know, my response to that is, sure, we want to make sure that, that they acutely tolerate the medicine. They don't have, let's say, an allergic reaction. So we, we need to give a test dose of an oral medicine before we give a, a long-acting injectable just to make sure they don't have any rare hypersensitivity reaction. But then the whole tolerability and efficacy kind of assessment takes longer. And sometimes I'm told that, oh, you know what, I'll give it a month. 
I'll give it a month and they can try it for a month. And then if they, it's okay, then I'll give the injection. Because we have long-acting injectables that last for about a month, would it make sense to just give that? You've already established the one to two days, but just to get uh, an assessment of, uh, well, is this something you want to use long-term? Is giving an injection a long-term commitment? No. And I'm a big believer in long-acting injectables to be used early, both in the course of illness and in the course of our personal interaction with, 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 a, with a patient. That um, I, I ran a first-episode psychosis program for a number of years, and a lot of my first-episode psychosis patients, I would start them, I would give them an oral medicine for a couple of days to make sure they were not having an allergic reaction. That would not be an assessment of whether the medicine would work. It would not be an assessment of other situations like extrapyramidal symptoms. And I would give them a long-acting injectable. If I'm going to, if we're engaging in a trial of whether a medicine is effective, and then what's the difference between giving a injection that's going to last for a month versus a pill bottle of 30 pills? I think there's a lot of reasons why one might rather do the injection in that situation. Now, if you give them the pill bottle, they may be taking it inconsistently, and you may say, well, this medicine didn't work, but they only took it half the time. Long-acting injectable, you can get a better assessment. So yes, it may not work, but that would be the same with, with oral formulation or injections. There are a lot of reasons why I think a long-acting injectable would be a better way to assay efficacy. I agree completely. Uh, At least you don't have to guess, are they adhering or not? And you know that they're getting the medicine and we know that it works or not. I also tell patients, look, if you don't like it, we don't have to continue giving you the medicine this way. You'll see how, how it works out for you. And for the most part, they like the freedom of not having to take an oral medicine every day that they used to to do in the past. So yeah, I think it's a a win-win. And if it doesn't work out, there's something else that you can consider trying. I know it's not a long-term commitment that they're signing on to years and years and years of the same thing. We need to remain flexible. So I, I agree with you there. And you know, most of my career I've spent in with treatment refractory schizophrenia in the state hospital system in New York. And we actually prescribed a lot of clozapine. And of course, patients who require clozapine are, are not candidates for something else because only clozapine works. But you know, sometimes we made mistakes and we declared someone as treatment resistant when in fact they were non-adherent. So the new guidelines for the assessment and treatment of people with treatment resistance actually spells out that you want a good trial of an antipsychotic and a good trial would include a long-acting injectable so that you take away that element of non-adherence that is really tough to assess when someone's taking oral medicine. So I think both first episode and long-term And for more chronic patients, long-acting injectables certainly are worthwhile considering. I also think in the outpatient world where there's, I mean, it's true in the inpatient world also, but more in the outpatient world where there there are so many other variables besides just medicine, that patients can decompensate because the holidays, that there's stress at home, substance abuse, there's all sorts of other things besides the medicines. And I think that if somebody is on a long-acting injectable and they have a decompensation, you can say, well, you were on this medicine, you were doing real well, we've maintained the same level of adherence, and now 
there's a decompensation. While that could be the medicine, maybe there's other factors going on. And that allows for more of a conversation to explore those psychosocial and other areas. I think if somebody is on a PO formulation, we're more likely to immediately just jump to, oh, it must be that you weren't taking the medicine or medicines don't work. And I think that that's sort of a pharmacocentric logic that's not so great. I agree completely. You know, uh, some of the struggles we have include prescribers being reluctant to actually offer this, but we'll get to that later. But sometimes we, we run into some resistance on the part of families and patients who may feel that this is a stigmatized kind of intervention. What do you do to combat that? Well, I think there's a lot of different ways that that should be addressed and it's individualized um, based on, on patient and their family. One issue I run into a lot is that patients confuse or conflate the long-acting injection with the short-acting injections they get in the hospital. And often short-acting injections in the hospital are posed as sort of a threat. If you don't get your act together, you're going to get the needle. Okay. And then here it's like, well, this is this, this is that same sort of punitive thing. And so there I address that this is a very, very different situation. Although it is still a needle, and often it can be the same gauge needle. In the hospital, when you, get, when you were given an acute injection, that was a time where you were deemed to be so out of control that you could be given a medicine without your consent at all. And it's a one point where you can have absolutely no buy-in from the patient. Here's the complete opposite. There's a lot more informed consent, I think, that's often done with long-acting injectables than with pills. And so we really have to talk about this. And this is your decision, you taking charge of your illness, as opposed to other people literally grabbing you and giving you medicine. So I think that just realizing that, that there's a very, very different level of sort of patient autonomy and decision-making. So that's, that's one area I think that comes up a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So there may be some misperceptions of what it's all about. I tell patients they're in the driver's seat with this decision. And that uh, I think it would be the optimal way of getting a medicine. I wish I had it for my blood pressure, that uh, I could avoid taking antihypertensives, which I sometimes forget, and it would be a lot more convenient. And sometimes there's also kind of lack of knowledge about the needles, where they're injected, and they they may think they need to drop their pants to get this needle. And in fact, that's quite the opposite. We don't want patients to drop their pants, actually. It's the upper outer quadrant of the gluteal muscle or the deltoid. They may not be aware of that. And they may also not be aware of the needles. I like to show them that. And they can see that it's similar to that flu shot that they got. And I actually share with them some of the research that's been done regarding injection site pain. I find that very reassuring. There was one product where they actually measured injection site pain on a visual analog scale of 0 to 100. And patients were asked, how painful was this injection after their first injection and after subsequent injections? And I tell patients, you know, after the first injection, these patients rated their injection site pain at 7 out of 100 and subsequent injections, 5 out of 100. What does that mean to you? And they usually say, well, that doesn't sound like very much. So I kind of try very hard to dispel the myth that these are painful. If they have tattoos, well, that's an easy one. I say, well, those tattoos probably hurt a lot more than what we're talking about. And if they have a history of IV drug abuse, we talk about how how they injected themselves was a whole different story. 
much more complicated than what I'm proposing. You know, injecting into a vein requires some very strong technical skills on their part. Here, we're just talking about an injection to a muscle. Really no big deal. So when talking about it in that way, that can help. But you know, what I find that works the best, and you may have encountered this as well, uh, Dr. Louise, when someone is reluctant and I find a patient for them to talk to who's receiving an LAI, that makes a world of difference, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've run some med groups through the years where those conversations have been incredibly helpful. And I do think that, yeah, the, the experience that patients that we've all had with needles, I mean, the vast majority of us have had multiple vaccines recently. So the idea of getting stuck with needles is something that's in all of our minds. And so we can sort of share some experiences. And what you said about the gluteal injection, I really think that that's, that's really, really critical. I have done a lot of ACT team work where I've had long acting injectables in my backpack, biking around Washington, D.C., giving people injections literally on the street. And the ease for many patients they don't even need to pull their pants down. Their pants already are exposing their upper outer quadrant. And um, so it's just how easy it is. And, you know, I've given injections in one time in a park right by the White House where, where Secret Service were looking at me and stuff. But it's very easy to do. And I think having the patient open up the box together, have them hold the needle, hold the medicine, that can be helpful. You know, something else about talking through um, resistance. Sometimes with paranoid patients found that the fact that we can look at the medicine together, and this is it, this is the only thing you're going to be taking for the month or two months, what have you. And there can be some paranoid scheme that something's terrible has been tampered with here. But I think the fact that it's relatively controlled, this one experience that we're having together, giving this medicine, that that actually can seem safer than the idea of each day opening up a pill bottle, taking a pill where there's some conflict that needs to be worked through. It sounds like this is uh, not a heavy lift for us to do as clinicians, but sometimes we, we think it is. And so we need to demystify it amongst ourselves as well and talk about this. There are some resources available on the web regarding injection and injection techniques. I find that very helpful. I did review uh, them uh, recently. SMI Advisor is that set of resources available, and there are others. I do want to mention that in addition to intramuscular injection, we now have a subcutaneous injectable form of risperidone, and we may have another one approved by the FDA next year or coming up in, in 2023. And uh, this is exciting. This is interesting. It's another way of, of offering something. What do you think of the subcutaneous approach? I think we'll we'll see how that how that goes both clinically and in terms of acceptance. I do think that sometimes in talking about medication options with our severely mentally ill patients, there is sort of a shell game that goes on. Well, I can't take this, I can't take this. This didn't work and even when this didn't work meant that I took the medicine for one day and they're crossing off the list. And I think that oh injections don't work for me. Well, you had intramuscular injection. Here's a different type. So I think that some of the choices that we have are beneficial because of actual clear efficacy or tolerability reasons. But sometimes those choices are just helpful to have other choices so we can have a more a richer conversation, give patients more opportunities to say yes or make it harder to say no. Because 
there's a lot of reasons why folks with severe mental illness are resistant to medications. And some of it's, it's intrinsic to the illness itself. I mean, it's, it's challenging for all doctors to get patients to engage in, in treatment. I think we have extra burdens. So having more options, I think, can, be, can only be a plus. Absolutely. The more options, the better. You know, I want to get to one uh, clinical situation that actually comes up a lot when I consult with our local community ZAC team. And that is the patient on a long-acting injectable haloperidol decanoate. They've been on it for quite some time. And invariably, they have some drug-induced Parkinsonism. Invariably, they're also on adjunctive benztropine. And we know that adjunctive anticholinergic medicine uh, can impair cognition. And our patients with schizophrenia already have impaired cognition. And I really want to get them off the benztropine. But in order to do that, I need to get them off haloperidol decanoate and onto a second-generation long-acting injectable. How do you do that? How do you transition someone from, let's say, haloperidol decanoate or flufenazine decanoate to a second-generation LAI? Well, I actually treat it the same way as if somebody was on PO haloperidol. There are many, many cases of polypharmacy that I think we all do and that, that we see. And, you know, sometimes it's unnecessary and it but I think often it's something we need to do. So it's usually not a big challenge for clinicians to take somebody who's on haloperidol PO and to add on a second generation PO medication. Well, if that's the case, why wouldn't you do that with long acting injectable? There are reasons, which would be that if you have a combined effect that has significant tolerability issues to anticholinergic medications or to medications that, you know, that you're increasing the D2 blockade, which is increasing risk of various experimental symptoms, then that might be a reason why you don't want to do it. But what I would typically do is if somebody's on haloperidol, um, decanoate, I'll add on PO of the second generation in question that I'm planning on long-acting injectable, give them a few days, maybe a week of tolerability, and then I will, I've had people on two long-acting injectables. I'll then stop the haloperidol um, decanoate, and then I'll, but I'll move them very quickly onto the second generation PO and then, then long-acting injectable. Yeah, and the benefit of that, of course, is you reduce the risk of uh, motor abnormalities, uh, lower the, the chance that they would have a drug-induced Parkinsonism, and uh, ostensibly uh, also by uh, eliminating benztropine after a while, that takes a little longer, you'll see improvements if they had tardive dyskinesia. So I think it's a win-win if we can make that conversion. But what if someone is on an LAI and their dose is as high as it can be, and they are still intermittently symptomatic, what do you do? Well, sometimes people need PO supplementation. And I think definitely have often done this where somebody is on long-acting injectable and then I'll add PO medication on top of it, hopefully to help them through a crisis and then be able to back off that. I think that you could say, well, that doesn't make sense. If they're able to take PO medicine, then why are they on long-acting injectable in the first place? Um, particularly if it's much more expensive medicine, that seems irrational. And my view there is that often the only reason why they're able to take this PO medicine 
as a supplementation is because they're on the long-acting injectable. The long-acting injectable gives some stability. It may not be a cure, but it gives them enough stability that if there is a crisis, then you can do this. I mean, I think that another point of this is that often folks on long-acting injectable are stable enough that they can actually say, I'm doing a bit worse. I need some help. And I, I feel that they, they have more insight there and both in terms of their symptoms and in terms of their own self-care. So I think that they are more likely to be able to engage in that. You know, that's very consistent with the research that has demonstrated that people receiving long-acting injectables feel better served in their illness in terms of their care. And uh, that's very consistent with the notion that maybe they have some better insight and uh, better ability to engage uh, with the people providing their care. So I, I view the long-acting injectable antipsychotic as foundational, and we build upon that, and they're much more likely to adhere to whatever else we provide as long as you know they're they're not floridly psychotic, and they won't be because they have at least that that foundational antipsychotic on board. Sometimes I'm asked about uh, insurance coverage. Now, where I provide uh, consultative services with the ACT team, it's it's not really a huge issue because we have the resources of an in-house pharmacy that takes care of all the nitty-gritty. But what advice can you give for our listeners regarding insurance coverage? I mean, it can be difficult, clearly, to deal with prior authorizations. It's important to just keep our moral compass of what we're doing and how important it is. And I think that if we're passionate about how much we want to help our patients and we're passionate about the belief that long-acting injectables can be an incredibly important tool in helping our patients, then that makes it a little bit easier to do the, the prior authorization process. Some things that, that I've done, some, some concrete things, for many years have done a lot of my prior authorization stuff myself. Cover my meds is something that most people use. I often written documents which kind of cover my basic belief system of what I think good care is and what I think is the ideal treatment. And I make a PDF of it and it's and it's sort of generic, but it's all truthful related to what I believe in. And I make a PDF and I attach it to prior authorizations through Cover My Meds. I find that that actually is very, very helpful. And, and very, very rarely do I get feedback of, Give me the specifics of this patient and what are the dates of, of when they've been on this, this. But that, I think, is a way to simplify the process and will, and will, will help. And also to form communicating to insurance companies about this is what we believe, this is what the data shows, and I think that sometimes that can, that can help. Uh, that's good advice. You know, I find that the patient assistance programs can be quite helpful in some situations. Actually, the documentation for those is quite onerous and uh, probably far easier to just get that prior authorization done. But there are ways of getting medicines to our patients, and uh, the manufacturers themselves also have resources that people might find helpful. You know, there, there's sometimes the question of who's going to give that injection. Now, you have experience giving injections. Not everybody does. It is possible to learn it. It's not that difficult. But what if there is no one where you're working that can give the injection or no one wants to? What resources can we access to get injections? Well, there are some communities where, where pharmacies can give injections. And you know, with the COVID vaccines, pharmacists have become much more active in terms of putting their hands on 
patients and giving them those injections. So I'm hoping that that might increase their ability to give to give other injections like long acting injectables. But even before COVID, there there are some communities where pharmacies can. Sometimes I've had luck with primary care doctors, and I think that there are a lot of positives that happen there. There's the fact that the patient can then get their injection, but also in those discussions, I think we're doing some work in terms of bridging with primary care, of educating the primary care clinicians about about serious mental illness, about medications, about not being scared about the idea of, of working with us, working together in terms of their treatment. So those are two things that, that I've done. Yeah, that's an excellent suggestion, you know, partnering with another specialist or primary care provider. You know, we, uh, many of us work in, in medical buildings where it's really not that difficult to uh, go down the hall and talk to someone about this. And uh, they have the whole setup to provide injections and and they're able to do so. And at the same time, you're going to have the patient take care of whatever somatic health needs uh, that need to be taken care of. And we know that we need to do the ongoing physical assessments of our patients. This, this makes it all easier when we have a, a good relationship with another provider. So thank you for that. So we talked about a lot of different topics regarding the offering and provision of long-acting injectables. Is there anything else that you would like to add, Dr. Lowy, that uh, our listeners would, would benefit from? Well, I like to have some studies or some particular tables or graphs on my laptop that I pull out to talk to patients and their families about just to say how often patients are non-adherent with their medications, how much evidence there is that if you take your medicines, you're more likely to do well and how serious the consequences are. And um, in terms of, you know, the potential irrevocable damage that's done from having an untreated psychotic episode. And I think that that's something that, that I do regularly is, is bring out those, go into sort of a med school lecture a bit and to show that information. And I think that, you know, because we haven't talked about the irrevocable damage and we talked a little bit about about treatment early in someone's illness, particularly schizophrenia over the first first few years is the most likely time that you're going to have the cognitive impairment that is very likely irrevocable. It's the time where suicides, 10% of patients with schizophrenia commit suicide, this tends to be weighted towards those first few years. So I think that giving definitive treatment as early as possible in the course of somebody's treatment is, is I just think, critical and long-acting injectables, I think, a really, really important piece of that. Absolutely. You know, preventing a relapse today can make a difference for a lifetime, I like to say. And if we can just decrease the number of relapses a person would experience, they would be better off. And it reminds me of when I did work in the state hospital system, the average age of my patients is around 50. And it was pretty common to have patients with a history of 30 relapses. And they ended up in the state hospital system. I only wonder if they had uh, early and effective interventions in the reduction of their relapse uh, rate to as low as possible and maybe only have a handful of relapses, they would not have ended up in the state hospital system. So what we need to do better there, uh, long-acting injectables clearly are superior to oral delivery of medicines in terms of preventing relapse, and we need to take advantage of that. I do share with patients and their families, one, one statistic, which I, I find particularly startling. In a two-year period, the risk of relapse for someone 
not taking their medication is about 75%. Now, it's not 100%, but it's still very high, 75%. On medicine, that risk of relapse is decreased. Unfortunately, it's not zero. I wish it was. But it is 25%, which sounds high, but still a lot lower than 75%. It's one-third the rate. Now, keeping someone on a medicine is, is hard work. It's hard work for all of us. Anybody with a a chronic illness, and it doesn't matter what it is. It could be schizophrenia, could be depression, could be anxiety, could be hypertension, it could be diabetes, it could be asthma. The adherence rates are quite low, about 50% partial or non-adherence. Luckily for people with schizophrenia, there's a way to give an injection. I mean, that's actually, you know, a benefit that people with asthma or heart disease don't have. So let's take advantage of this intervention that actually will improve outcomes for our patients. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Lowy, for that wonderful discussion. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot today. For additional educational activities on long-acting injectable antipsychotics, click on the link in the show notes. Thank you all for listening and have a great day.